Welcome back to the Code Adam podcast. My name is Julia, and today's interview is with Nick Cohen. Nick attended two troubled teen programs between uh, May 2008 to September 2009. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for being our guest today. Could you please tell us what your first experience with the, tr- uh, with the troubled teen in- industry was like? Well, uh, like most people, I just woke up one morning and two men were in my room and they told me that if I, I was a freshman in high school, I was hardly a hundred pounds. I was like hardly five foot tall. I was very small, even for that age. And I just turned 15 and they told me that if, um, I resisted, they would cuff me and leash me. And they, you know, after kind of a few minutes of hysterics, they took me down on a plane where I was strip searched at the airport, flew me to Atlanta drove me up to the mountains and then i was told that i was in a wilderness program where i'd be for the next um two three months and then after that wilderness program i was put in another wilderness program the next not even the next day like the next like i just went right from one to the other there was literally no downtime in between like i hardly had time to even eat a meal and that one was in virginia i stayed in that one for 13 months the first one was more backpacking centric more kind of they just throw you out of nature they take all your clothes which is really traumatizing for me kind of strip you down naked and um you know search you and i i i didn't really get in a lot of trouble before that ironically i didn't like i had so i had a troubled home life but in reality from an outside perspective i kind of looked like um just like a normal kid i did well in school i played sports so being kind of thrown into that environment overnight and completely blindsided like that, it really um, affected me. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, of, of course it would. Like like yeah. any kid ever who gets like taken in the night, um, it's right. traumatic. Like there's no way that you could ever tell me that that was that's not traumatic or that's not like a, no. a weird thing to do to a teenager. A lot of the people say like their parents woke them up, but my parents didn't even wake me up. I had no idea what was happening. The, the men told me my parents, um, like, put them off to it, but I, I didn't know if I believed them. I literally, in my heart, did not believe I would survive that day. Like, I thought I was going to be killed. I did not know what was happening, and nobody told me. And then at the end of the day, when I finally, you know, they take my clothes and they strip search me, and, you know, it's not like police or whoever. It's just, like, a bunch of middle-aged people who are doing it. So it's, it, it feels very violating. And then they give me the program clothes and they give me a pack. And I remember I'm like walking with the staff and he's like, you know, we're just a bunch of guys and we have fun and we hike around. And I asked him like, okay, so where's the building? And the guy like looks at me like, ah, oh, they didn't tell you, like, I have to tell you this, like, there's no building, like you're, you're out here. And at the time, two months was too much to wrap my head around, but I would be gone for 15 months. Honestly, I don't remember a ton of it because I was at the other one so much longer. And the most traumatic part about second nature Blue Ridge was like the environmental factors. Um, the staff there were pretty chill and by chill, I mean, they didn't really care, you know, um, there weren't a lot of like consequences, like the consequence was just kind of like you were there. And eventually I adapted and was like, it was all right. But the one in Virginia was a lot tougher and a lot more kind of sinister in my mind. So then I got the same guys who kidnapped me, by the way, took me from the first one to the second one. So I had to like encounter them again, you know, 
And the second time, in a weird way, was like it was like a different kind of traumatic because I, I knew it was coming. I wasn't blindsided. I was emotionally prepared. I was I had my wits about me. And they were like bad mouthing the other kids in my first program and bragging about the celebrities that they had transported. You know, they would name a movie and be like, "You've seen this," and I'd be like, "Yeah." And they'd be like, "We got we got so and so in this movie." Wow. So that that <laughs> left a poor taste in my mouth. And then I was at the one in Virginia for um yeah, 13 months. And that one was more like, um, the, it was like cutting down trees and digging up tree stumps and building shelters. And we were constantly like tearing, they were kind of like gazebos, like wrapped in plastic, like in between a log cabin and a gazebo and, you know, sleeping in them through the winter. Yeah, a lot it was... of more like heavy manual labor and less like backpacking and hiking. Mm, I was looking on the website and it. It looks like you guys kind of build the like the huts and the structures from the ground up. That's what it looks yeah. like. Yeah, it's, it's like... on about 500 acres, and it's structured in a very strange way. There's five groups, and the groups are about 10 kids, and there's the campsites are scattered throughout. But the 10 kids are not allowed to talk to, talk about, or acknowledge the other kids in the group. You have to pretend like you don't exist. So the whole time, there's like simultaneously these other kind of – like, you know, there's these other communities where the same thing's happening, like, right near you, but you can never even acknowledge them. And later in life, I've run into a few of the kids from other groups and been able to talk to them about it. It's just bizarre. Wow, that is weird, because, I mean, we, at least in the program I attended, we knew, like, most of the people who were there, like, by a first-name mm-hmm. basis. So you guys didn't even get to know names of the kids who were in different huts or... Well, you weren't supposed to. You would eventually do it because in the schoolhouse, you would be seated next to them, but you still couldn't acknowledge them, look at them, talk to them. You had to pretend they didn't exist. That was the weird thing is you were like in the like main areas, like the schoolhouse and stuff. Mm -hmm. You were constantly around them. So eventually you would kind of like pick up your name and there'd be like this this weird kind of nonverbal communication. But no. And that was one of the major rules. And it's kind of... I always kind of, as an adult, thought it was kind of to um, further isolate you. Yeah. Further kind of stop, like, um, people kind of, like, ganging up and clicking up and talking about how messed up things are. Because the school is kind of structured in a way to, like, hold, like, turn the kids against each other. And they'd call it holding you accountable. But it was really, they would really incentivize, like, ratting people out. Yes, that's a story I'm familiar with. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious what your relationship with the staff at your program was like. This was weird because there's like a, there was a hierarchy of staffs, as I call it. There were the lower, low tier group leaders who they lived with you 24 hours a day. They only got 48 hours a week and they'd switch off. There's about three of them. And the relationships with them, they're kind of like a lot of kids would kind of displace feelings of them being your parents. We had a lot of orphans and like, um, kids who were, the school had a weird, um, kind of deal with um, the detention centers in the area where kids could choose to go there as opposed to going to the overflowing detention centers. So there were a lot of what they called state kids who didn't have good home lives. And about half the time, the group leaders were we- were um, really nice and really great. And you'd have a lot of fun. And the group work projects, when you do it as a group, were great. Those didn't bother me at all. But then they'd have these group meetings and they'd do it frequently, like multiple times a day. And they'd make you, they kind of um, confront you in front of the group. And if you couldn't work it out, which I'll, I'll get into that more as I go, 
they would put you on a work project. You were turned out of the group. You weren't allowed to acknowledge anyone until you finished your work project and worked out the uh, the issue. And they they would just work you and make you push like wheelbarrows of rocks up mountains until your hands bled and dig up tree stumps in the rain. And sometimes they'd take two, three days. If they took long enough, they'd take your bed away. They would uh, feed you sardines for every meal. And it, it kind of got more, there were kind of different levels of them. Like sometimes you could just push like one wheelbarrow up the trail. Our trail is about half a mile one time and then that was that and it was fine so the group leaders were there were kind of like two sides with them and my relationship with them was weird because kind of everyone has a role in the group i think and my role was kind of the golden boy like i was very young like i said a lot of these kids came from broken homes and had very bad behavioral issues and I was a straight A student before and athletic and I, I didn't have a good relationship with my parents. I didn't have a very good home life, but, and, you know, I kind of got into partying a little too young, but other than that, I, um, I, you know, I had ambitions in life. I had a lot going for me. I was well behaved. So my group meetings were very abstract. They weren't really about behavior. The big theme for me was complacency and not pushing myself and growth and not taking my growth seriously. And I never really knew what that meant. And as I get older, I realized, oh, it didn't mean anything. They just needed to reach their quota. They needed to break you down. And unlike second nature, which they'd break you down with the kidnapping. And then throughout the two months, they'd build you back up. This place broke you down and built you back up and broke you down and built you back up and broke you down and built you back up. And if you finally thought you knew how things went, they'd wake you up in the middle of the night and make you push a wheelbarrow. And the, there were the upper, the upper level staff. And these guys were terrible. They were like the drill sergeants. They would just kind of come down. Everyone was terrified. They'd get a group meeting. And when they came down, they meant business because they, they were, their time was divided between the five groups. So if they came down, they put you on a work project. You knew it was going to hurt. You knew you were going to get yelled at. You knew they were going to kind of like diminish your character. And a lot of the kids had very obvious behavioral problems. Those kids were like kind of easy to what I would call like to get them, to get them to mess up, to get them to do something worth pushing a wheelbarrow. But for me and a few of the other kids who figured it out pretty quickly, the, the higher up staffs had to get us because they, they liked to get the ones that were harder. Mm. One of my first weeks, I remember this guy, um, he was one of the owners, his name was Outland, and he, um, you know, took me aside, he was like, hey, you're, you're doing really well here, you're really polite, you work really hard, you're getting along with everyone, and I was like, thank you, Mr. Outland, and he goes, I don't believe it for a second, I think you're angry, I think you're dishonest, and I'm gonna make you push this empty wheelbarrow around with me for an hour until you get honest. So I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. You know, I'm not doing anything deceptive. And the guy makes me push it. And he starts like interrogating me. He's like, you know, did you sneak in your cell phone? Do you like drugs here? No, no. Are you clicking off with these people? Are you not holding these people accountable? No, no. You know, I don't believe you. And at one point I said, no, I'm trying to get, not get noticed. And he looks at me. He's like, now we're getting somewhere. That's honest. So then we kind of worked on that. He's like, why are you trying not to get noticed? And I said, I don't want to do work or you stupid. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. And eventually he fills it up and he starts screaming at me. He starts screaming at me. And then I eventually, after about three hours, I 
my hands are bleeding. I'm really in pain. This is the worst. Like, this is not my first or second week. So this is the worst one I've done so far. I just throw the wheelbarrow down and I scream at him. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. And he says, there, there's the anger. That's you. That's who you are. And that's honest. And then he let me back in the group. And it was like this weird, like mind bending thing. That's so freaking weird. This is like a weird power play where he tried to get you angry and get a reaction he got it and then tried to tell you that that's like who you are exactly it's Uh. like if they couldn't see some of the kids you can see as soon as you step into the group why they're there you know and you know there's no judgment either way like you know some kids need a little more help but if they couldn't they would put you in these situations where they could you could fit their schema and then once you did they said you can't even argue to see and then, you know, it's like it's a form of gaslighting and you're, you you start to believe that and you're like, oh, I guess I did react like that after three hours and my hands bled, you know, but you're not really thinking like that. You're so tired. You just want to eat. You just want to sit down. You want this guy to leave you alone. Yeah. It's like you asked for a reaction. You got the reaction. I should wish I'd done that way earlier if that's the game we were playing because it really does become a mind game when you're in it, situations it like that metagame. so the next time he does that to you you try and do that earlier and then he goes at you twice as hard and you have to do something else and every time you're on one of these things they get more wild and more wild you know so i'm curious uh what the rules were like at this program and like you know did you have trouble trying to comply with some of them and what what um what happened when you did get consequenced if you didn't comply with them they were really rigid rules and the rules weren't very fluid you know it was kind of like what they felt like that day but they they try and do it real military style you know there's like the obvious rules like the there's no mix mixing the groups was the only like not obvious rule that's very obviously and strictly reinforced enforced in the program don't talk to the other kids don't acknowledge them and then, um, you know, like no swearing, but there was also things like you couldn't talk about music because they said it made you have an image and they wanted you to get to know each other for who you are. You couldn't talk about like, like I'm really into music and like comedy, so I couldn't talk about those things, you know, like my hobbies, you know, you had to like work hard and everything was subjective. I never had a hard time behaving or following the rules, you know, like the checklist of rules. My things were always, as I said earlier, very abstract complacency growth these like very these things that didn't mean anything to me when i came into the program i don't think my parents sent me away because i was complacent you know they sent me away because we were you know i was 14 and partying too much i never had a hard time following any of the rules never i was i was i really had this like path in fact i would call it pathological a pathological um desire to to please and to i wanted their approval i wanted them to tell me they were good and i you know in 10th grade i was in the highest courses they offered which for the record i'm not like bragging how smart i am they were not hard like everyone i know were also in these courses back home and they didn't even have teachers for me they had to get tests from public schools so i was a good student um never gave the staff any like real trouble uh i never got any fights and i never yeah i I don't know i had i had some safety issues i definitely i have i definitely had some incidences i was involved in where kids got hurt but when you're cutting down trees all day over a year and a half and it's you know 11 to 17 year olds that's going to happen 
Yeah, if you're like hanging out in the woods, like with a bunch of kids, you know, and you're sawing up stuff, it's you can't blame yourself for that. Um, yeah, no. So, what do you think was like one of the like the most challenging aspects of the program for you, personally? Hmm. It was the what I call the angst. It was the fact that when every time I had fun or I was kind of let my guard down a little bit. I knew that somewhere they're going to try and hit me with a work project and an issue and some emotionally devastating thing I need to take a look at, you know, and they're going to isolate me from the group and make me work till my hands bleed and yell horrible, horrible things at me and, and everyone. I mean, I, I have this one memory where I was pushing a wheelbarrow with this other kid who happened to be an orphan and he was behind me and they're focusing on me because when, when I got out of the group and it happened to me less often than the other kids, I, I, I really want to emphasize during the, this, that my experience there was probably easier than 80% of the kids in my group. And I'm still like this shaken up by it, you know, Yeah. you know, they're telling me your parents sent you away. You're unfit for society. No one can be around you. No one can stand. You know, I've heard it like a million times. It's about six months. And I've heard it a million times at this point. I don't care. You know, I'm yelling. I'm like kind of playing it, yelling back. But the kid behind me is being really quiet when they're screaming at me. Then the staff looks back and goes, and you, you don't even have parents. And then they just go back to screaming at me. Like, why would you say that to a child? Wow. I'm around the same age now. And I was t- like getting ready for this interview. I was telling my friend about this. And when I told him that story, we both just kind of like started laughing. And I'm like, this is so absurd. It like doesn't even seem real. Why would a, like a grown man in his mid twenties yell at a kid for being an orphan? That's ridiculous. That's an abuse of power right there. Like that, yeah. that was a, a grown adult being like, what can I do to hurt this kid or to get a reaction from right. this kid? And he yeah. knew he could oh. do it. Like he knew he could do it. So he did. And, and- yeah. yeah, and the worst part about that thing was, was the kid didn't even react, and it wasn't even close to the worst thing. I heard someone yell at someone, and yeah, he was trying to get a reaction. He was trying to, you know, they would try and mold you into their schema, and they would use this backwards logic that was biasless. But it, by the end of it, it wasn't biasless because the thing they were trying to prove, they'd prove it by the time they finished proving that thing. What would you say? Um is like one of the craziest things you witnessed at your program. I just witnessed kids get like the shit kicked out of them. That was the big one for me. I never got restrained or the beat up, but I witnessed kids get beat up a lot. They would, there were some days they call them dishonesty sessions where they put the whole group by tr- different trees in the campsite. So we were isolated and they would scream at kids and make them push wheelbarrows and the other kids would watch, but you couldn't move. And they, for me, like while the other kids are getting yelled at, I remember one of them, they made me write this list and they made me divide it in between kids I liked and kids I didn't like, which I thought was weird. Whoa. And then, so at first I put everyone in like, because why not? And then they told me I was dishonest, I had to push a wheelbarrow. So then I went and redid it and I did it like somewhat honestly, you know, I, 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 like, I didn't really hate anyone. I definitely hated some kids in the moment, but I, like as an adult now, I, I can kind of see I just hated the circumstances, you know? And I had to read it in front of everyone. And then I had to live with them. And you're incentivized to try and about four times in my stay, four or five times, I earned home visits. That was another way the system worked. So you, you didn't get your first one until about six or seven months in. And 
they were constantly incentivizing you with these home visits. And one of the greatest ways to earn them would be to tell the staff when someone was doing something bad. So that really just, you know, put a target on my back. There's like a lot of stuff that's coming to mind that's just like wildly inappropriate for this podcast that I don't feel comfortable talking about. But um, a lot of runaways, a lot of um, violence. Yeah. And just a lot of negligence also. And I forget those ones because they were less scary, but there was just like kids would get hurt. Kid, kids would, um, you know, kid got a pneumonia didn't get to go to the hospital for a month um my mind is blown that they made you write down the names of residents you didn't like that's just so unacceptable to, to do that to like a teenager or a child and then put them like against you and make them you made you they made you read that out loud to them yeah to everyone wow for me in like a group setting for me it was more of a head game between me and the staff because they thought like it was in the south they were you know you think you're so smart you think you're better than people you think you're better than the people here you know this kid's coming from the detention center you're you know you're like the math and science kid so they would they would play these mind games with they i don't know they thought i was like a worthy intellectual adversary or something i got that attitude a lot and at the time i was kind of up for the challenge but now i think back i'm like these are grown men and like the low tier group leaders are in their 20s the higher tier ones 30s 40s 50s you know these are old men playing a battle witch against a kid except they can make him do manual labor and hit him and i can't do that back honestly your program sounds like a tough thing to have gone through um do you think had you not been sent away that you'd be better off than you are today so this was the question um, I really didn't know how to, this, this question I really don't know how to answer because I thought about this a lot in my life and I used to think at certain points, like when I first got out of the school and I, you know, I, I was diagnosed with like Stockholm syndrome at a certain point, like, of course. and kind of in college because when I got out, I, I, you know, I was like their star and they would, they like the first year or two I was out, they would have me talk to groups of parents who were considering bringing their kids there. And they'd do that in exchange for like college recommendations and stuff. And they loved me. I had a good relationship with them the first few years I left the school. So at first I thought I'd be nothing without them. They're doing everything for me. You know, I got my life together. You know, I'm going to college. I'm going to be an engineer. And then I went through this like horrible depression and dark period where I thought, well, I, like where I wasn't like achieving everything I wanted to as fast as I wanted to, and I started blaming it. But eventually, I kind of just came to the conclusion that I would—I am so radically different for having gone through this, and so much time has passed. There are so many variables; it, it's impossible to know. I could talk about for hours about where I could or couldn't be. I could be dead. I could be right here. There, I could be exactly in the same place. There is no way of knowing. I am so different. I am, it's just like night and day. I will never know. I don't even know where to begin. But it did instill some really amazing virtues in me. My work ethic and my perseverance is just amazing. My survival instinct and just my kind of like sense of danger is very, very good. Um, I'm mistrusting of people, which can be a bad thing, but it's, it's definitely helped me avoid some bad situations. But then on the flip side, there's like that part of me that thinks I'll never be good enough and I'm always going to be that, sh- that like kid who's shitty enough to go to the woods and no matter what I do or how much success I've had. And I've had a lot of success in my life since this school, even this, like especially this year. 
and no matter what, it doesn't feel like I'm good enough or I'm going to be able to undo that or I'm going to live up to that that pedestal of like being honest and not angry. You know, I'll always be angry. And the, 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 the irony is I'm a lot angrier after I left the school than I was when I went in. Yeah, I think I feel that anger um, of just like ha- not having control of your that one period of your life. Yeah, those are like really, really weird things to think about sometimes as an adult I feel like I'm very I don't want to say I'm detached because I'm present but I'm detached in a way that I feel like others aren't like when things are going bad in my adult life and you know I'm messing up at work or whatever the case is like it doesn't feel like nothing feels really real you know like Mm. no matter how bad I mess up nobody is going to make me push the wheelbarrow no matter what happens, you know, if my boss gets mad at me, um, you know, my friends get mad at me, like, there, no one's going to make me go anywhere I don't want to go. No one's going to stop me from sleeping in my bed at the end of every night. So it's it's kind of, like, harder to feel like any anything matters or has, like, I don't want to say consequences, because, like, obviously, if I, like, commit a crime, that has consequences, but, like... You know, the the action-reaction thing doesn't feel like I'm numb to it. Yeah, that definitely hits home with me a little bit. I do sometimes think that, like, there are situations that I feel like I should be reacting to, but I'm not because I'm, like, at the end of the day, like, it's not really that big a deal compared to, like, you know, getting your whole life flipped upside down. Um, Exactly. So... The podcast is named Code Adam, and it is mm-hmm. Code Adam is when you try to run from your program. Um, did they use the term Code Adam for you in your program, or was it a different? They actually did not. They were just like, we got a runner. We got a runner. <laughs> Our... they, there was no like code name term. Code name term. I don't know. I've heard it, from it, a couple yeah, of programs. I, I, I didn't know that before. I like that name a lot, by the way. It's really, really, it's got a nice detached sense of irony about it. But um, <laughs> we got a runner. I'll let I'll let um the Discovery um School of Virginia know that they got to update that. Uh, well, they closed down. Did they last, close down last week? That's actually why I oh. reached out to you. Because, wow. Yeah, because um, I was amazed with how many people were bummed. Bummed? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just never got out of that mentality. Yeah, I get that a lot as well. Like, I feel like um, I I was like really into like I would actually go back and mentor a couple of times like when I got out of the program. Yeah, Um, me too. And just because I like felt like I had this like really good connection with it, I like got a lot out of it, whatever. But um, yeah, now that I like realize kind of like um, the Stockholm syndrome and like this complex PTSD I'm suffering from like now. I just feel like uh, it's weird that I have like a lot of girls reaching out and the podcast like if, if anyone who thinks that like one of these programs was like super helpful. Like, of course I would welcome them on. Um, and they could, they could come the and time. say whatever they wanted about how, whatever they feel and whatever they think. I'm not here to tell you that you have to talk shit on any program at all. Like, but um, yeah, I have had a couple people reach out to me and be like, un- very frustrated like that I've created this platform uh, for you guys to like kind of use your voice. And I, I just want to say like, there are a lot of people who kind of have like grown up and realized like that these programs have caused like underlying issues for them like long term Um, but there's a lot of kids who are getting out of the program today and they feel like this has given them the restart that they needed and that's so valid as well so like don't feel like you know there's not two sides of each of I kind of do have a message for them and I've been thinking about how to word this a lot 
Um, if you gain something from the program, if, if it helped you, that's wonderful. That's like amazing. And I'm really happy for you sincerely. But the thing for me is the pro like you think you feel that way because the program has convinced you that you are basically unreachable and you need this drastic intervention to become reachable. And the only way to get that was to go through these hardships that are ethically gray at best. Right. And there's no other way you could have done it. There's no other way. But if you're feeling that restart and you're feeling better, you were reachable. And I, I think there's a more optimal way with love that you could have been reached. And if you ever realize that for yourself, like, I'm, I'm sorry, it's okay. Like, that's how I feel. There's a lot of um, processing and unlearning that a lot of us do have to do. But that is not to take away from you know, any of the things that most people do feel when they come straight out of the program. So if you are someone who's like straight out of a program, like, yeah, like you're all of these feelings and emotions that you're feeling are super valid. And like, no one's trying to take away from that. Okay. I also think it's really interesting that there's kind of two poles. There's people who kind of feel more or less how kind of we feel. And there's people who kind of still love it and think it saved their life. You never meet anyone who's like, meh, yeah, it was okay. I could have taken it or leave it. You know, (laughs) you never meet anyone in the middle. That's so true. Yeah, I don't think I've met anyone in the middle yet. Um, so I think, yeah, we'll leave it with the Code Adam story. Please let us know what um, your running story was. <laughs> so this story, it's, I'm very much so involved in it, but it's not about, I'm not the runner in the story. We got this new student and um, yeah, we'll name him protagonist. I'm not going to use his real name. But um, he... Uh, he, I really liked him. I actually still keep up with him. And he just did not jive well at all. He was the only kid who, he um, he seemed like he didn't have behavioral problems at first, but immediately he was just actively defiant. He would, you know, try and, like, legitimately practice civil disobedience stuff, like lie down. But it was Christmas time, and we just figured out who was coming, going home for Christmas, and he was not. And he, um, he was really bummed. So one morning, he realized that if he just stayed in his sleeping bag and tied it off, no one would make him get out of bed. Smart, I thought. Everyone, everyone's jaws dropped, and we're doing our morning like splitting wood. You know, we're all talking. You know, it's like the talk around the water cooler. Like, what's uh, what's he gonna do? What's the protagonist gonna do? Two of the staff come, and they put him on his shoulder like a log and they carry him through the wood corral and they carry him way behind the, the kind of like the habitated campsite into like the back country. They, they carry him about a hundred or 200 meters outside the, um, the, the campsite and they dump him from over their heads. These men are both about six feet tall out of the sleeping bag and he falls into the mud. And one of them yells in his face, if you want to sleep, you can just sleep right here. And he looks at him and goes like, all right, and like rolls back. And then, no, no, they scream at him. You know, they make, they're, they're trying to make him work. And they're like all day. We just hear screaming coming from back behind the work corral, you know, screaming and working and the sound tools clanking. And so it's night and we hear, we hear, um, a lot more screaming than before. And granted these, like to give you a, an idea of how loud these people are we're like 100 200 meters away we can hear everything you know 
they are screaming at this kid. They're not raising their voice. They're not being stern. They are, you know, they're, the staff are red in the face all day. And eventually I, we hear these panic noises and then they, they yell, help, help, never mind, just send Nick. The kid ran at one point. You know, he just dropped the tools and starts running. And the staff ran after him. And the one staff was gaining on him, and he jumped up, and he straddled this kid's neck with his legs and rode him into the ground um, with put, pushing his face in the mud and yelled, Yeah, boy, the whole time. These two men, it's raining. Of course it's raining. These two men are holding shovels on top of this kid who I don't think's breathing. I think they're going to ask me to bury him. Remember, I'm kind of the favorite, and the, the, the staff, can, like, the kids can kind of see that. And I don't know. Every day it's been such a nightmare, and it's completely surpassed my expectations that, of course, they're going to ask me to bury a dead peer. Like, why wouldn't that happen? That seems like a par for the course at this point, you know? So I asked them, like, is he dead? Like, I'm, And they're like, no, he's not dead. And they gave me a lantern, and they made me run to the other campsites, which were forbidden. You weren't allowed to talk to them, remember? Like Paul Revere, I had to go running for help. And eventually I got the other staff, and they got this kid. And they worked this kid. We didn't see him for about five days. And when he got back in the group, they made every single kid scream in this kid's face about how he affected. Because they do kind of like, they punish us until the kid got back in the group. And we didn't even care, but... <laughs> They'd make, and then they'd make us scream at him. While the kid was working, pushing wheelbarrows, he got a staph infection. And his hand swelled up to the, like, like the size of a melon. And they denied him medical attention for about two months. Jesus. This was a tough kid. He was really tough, really masculine. And one day, I just saw him crying on his knees. And I was like, what, what's wrong? And he said, he's just like my aunt. I've never been in this much pain. I don't know what happened. And, um, you know, eventually they got the surgery or whatever. But, um, yeah, that's just um, nothing happened. No one was held accountable. And the, the fact that they got me involved and me to, like, you know, yeah. try and clean it. Like, you know, I helped clean it up for them. I feel like there's a lot of situations um, where I hear these stories of staff uh, manhandling residents, manhandling kids. And I got out. I was there 13 months, which sounds like a while. Some oh, of the kids were there four years. I got out lightning fast. I did what I had to do, and I got out. Yeah, that's you know? another thing is, like, 13 months. That's insane. I was only in a program for nine months, and that felt, like, way, way, way too long and, t and took a lot yeah. of toll on me. So for the fact that there's kids in the these programs that are in there for four years, it blows my mind. I know some of the kids, they didn't even get to go to high school. They started before high school and they graduated from them. And then those kids, you know what they do with their life? They go back and work there because they're, they're, that's what they know. Yeah. And that's like the job opportunity they'll get because they're so mentally like not socially like able to communicate with people at that point. Like you get such bad social skills when you've been in a, pr a program like that for very right. long periods of time. It's so hard to socialize um, afterwards. Well, the, the staff are kind of like brainwashed too, especially the, the students who came back as staff, you know, and they, the, the sad part about those particular cases is they really believe in their hearts that they're doing the right thing. And why wouldn't they? That's what they know. They just think that's what life is. You know, you can't go to a fortune 500 company and start screaming at people, you know, but you can do that as part of your job at these programs and nothing will happen.
Yeah. No one will be okay. What's the What's the kid gonna do? Talk to HR? Like yeah, talk to know? HR. Good luck with that. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel like I've done a lot of research on the origin of the troubled teen industry, and I've looked into you know the people who kind of started the breaking code silence movement with Paris Hilton and um, some of the programs she was sent to, whether that be like Sudo or Provo Canyon, mm-hmm. and um, some of the stuff that was described in these programs that didn't happen at my program but um there were called like rep sessions or rap sessions I forget which one it was but it the idea of it was basically you kind of sit in the room together with your peers your the residents who are there with you um and somebody is everyone gets singled out at one point and you get singled out and just screamed at and yelled at by your peers like basically like saying you didn't do yeah, this like, today like, like you didn't did do that to, um, the protagonist of that story yeah exactly. yeah that's what it reminded they, me of they didn't put the name to it but yes they did that yeah, that's in, that's insane because I feel like that is like a level of abuse. I'm so glad I didn't have to go through, but I've heard that that's happened in so many programs. It is just like another way that these programs like, you know, get control and try to get you kind of like to stay there longer as well as like pinning you against your peers. God, it just it's it's crazy to think that there's just over 50,000 programs that are open in the United States today. And like, you know, a lot of those kids are like still, you know, stuck in the woods right now. That's why I think this podcast and this – well, that's actually what inspired me after this. I was in such a bad – this was like two weeks ago. I was in such a bad place mentally that moment. I was like, I need to – there has to be other people like me. And I did some Googling, and then I found this, breaking cut silence. Eventually, you reached out to you, and I just was like, I, I need this. I need someone – there has to be someone like me that, like, feels this way. And it's, it's really important what you're doing, and it's really important that – um. People are kind of using social media. We're all connected now in a way we weren't 10 years ago. And we're using social, we're getting our stories out there. And maybe for our generation, it's a lost cause. But for the generations below us and for when our generation starts up, kids that age, yeah, there'll be more information and people will really know it's for profit. It's not, it's not a, (laughs) you know, oh, and something really interesting about my therapeutic school there was no therapist wow. and they, that was a point of pride that they didn't have therapist. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely yeah. fucking ridiculous. You can't have a therapeutic program without any therapists. Come on. Yeah. It was uh. all mostly kids straight out of college, like the lower tier staff, not the upper tier staff, but kids straight out of college, freaking out about not having a job, having a psychology degree, 22, 23, 24 years old, you know? Jesus. That's um, early 2000s for you. And I, like, I remember one of the staff told me his salary. They made like 18000 a year. Jesus. And they, were, they worked literally what's five times 24 hours a week, you know? Oof. They were there all the time. They never went home. Except for those two days off where, yeah. It's like what kind of person do you have to be to like want to do that for your job? I don't know. There is one guy there who's now like a famous poet and he's got, you know, like millions of Twitter and Instagram followers. I remember he was there for like a month or two and then he was like, nah, this is like, he like told everyone in front of the kids, like, this is messed up. I'm not doing this. Uh And they all shamed him and they told us that he would never be a success and he was going to be, uh, um, he's, you know, he's a bad dude. He's not welcome back. And now he's like this prestigious award winning poet. And I, mean, I reached out to him and he didn't, he didn't reply, but I, I just found it so interesting. I was like, Jesus. damn, it's cool. <laughs> Good for 
Well, thank you so much, Nick, for being on the show today. Um, it's been so awesome chatting with you and hearing your story. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for breaking code silence with us. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. Thank you. And thanks for making this platform.